Welcome to the StrongTeams.com podcast, where we help leaders build strong teams. Teams built on empathy, understanding, and trust, where every team member feels valued and contributes at the highest level possible. Welcome to the StrongTeams.com podcast. My name is Steve Neesmith. And I'm Rodney Cox. And Rodney, I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time. We've got a really special guest today. Our guest is Matt Cumby. For nine years, Matt served on the world's most elite military fighting unit, the Navy SEALs. At the end of 2022, Matt separated from SEAL life to enter the private sector in Nashville, Tennessee, and has agreed to tell us about his experience on a SEAL team and the leadership lessons he learned. Matt, thank you for joining us today on the StrongTeams.com podcast. Thank you, Stephen Roddy, for having me. Yeah, we're grateful that you're here, Matt. And I want to start by thanking you for your service. We're grateful for you. We're grateful for all the sacrifices that you and your family have made for our great country. And so thank you. We're grateful. Well, it's a, my pleasure. A lot of fun. So, Matt, you know, I, I know the SEALs don't have anything to do with teamwork, right? <laughs> so that's why we we have you on our podcast today. We want you to tell our listeners today a little bit more about how the SEALs work, who you are, and what maybe some of the lessons they could learn um, about uh, how to build strong teams, because that's about the business that we are. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you entered the SEALs, how long you've served, both both domestically and abroad. Sure, Rodney. Um, so I joined the Navy in 2014. I made that decision to join after my first semester of college, which was in 2009. Uh, continued through the uh, process of education and graduated and then decided it was time to leave. So 2014 took off for Great Lakes, Illinois, and then followed that pipeline, which took me to San Diego for a period of time and then finished up in Virginia Beach. Um, I was deployed to Iraq twice in 2017 and 19. And um, yeah. It's awesome. So yeah, family, tell us a little about your family, if you don't mind. Sure. I have a wife who I met. Uh, we actually grew up here in Nashville, going to the same church. Um, she has a different story about our uh, getting to know each other, but um, she wouldn't talk to me for quite some time until college, fortunately. But once I won her over, uh, if I still am, uh, we got married after graduation, and she's been right at my side the whole time, uh, being very supportive. I don't think I could have done it without her. We have three kids as well. We have a five-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old. Wow, you guys have been busy, eh? <laughs> That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about the the acronym SEAL. Is is does the name represent something or how did the SEALs get their name and tell us a little more about that acronym acronym? Sure. So the uh, SEAL teams were commissioned in 1962 and it was primarily a response to uh, kind of the growing guerrilla conflict in Vietnam. The acronym stands for Sea Air and Land as essentially a commando force responsible for maritime operations during Vietnam. And so I would say the, the acronym is pretty accurate as far as the um, operating environments in which the community works. So, uh, Matt, what was the name of the SEAL team specifically you served with? And is that the right way to refer to the team? Are they called teams? Are they called units? Uh, tell us a little bit more about the team that you uh, or the unit that you served with. So I was attached to SEAL Team 7 in San Diego. And uh, so on the West Coast, you have uh, the odd number teams. On the East Coast, you have the even number teams. 
And what uh, what distinguishes the SEAL teams or the SEALs from other special forces in the military? Is it the sea, air, and land specifically? Is it the way you approach your work? Because um, I know there are other special forces, if you will, like in the Army, uh, for example. So doctrinally, the distinguish the distinguishing factor for the SEAL teams is the maritime component. So okay. um, while there's quite a bit of overlap between all of the special operations forces, uh, technically the SEAL teams are kind of responsible for that maritime component, specifically things like uh, maritime interdiction and vessel searches and seizures. Why did you want to become a Navy SEAL? Like you're in college and somehow or another did God speak to you and say, hey, you're going to be a Navy SEAL? I mean, how did how did that come to you? So I think my first semester in college was, um, it felt a degree, there was a degree of aimlessness about it. Uh, I just, you know, you meet people and they want to become doctors, they want to become engineers, uh, they want to build a business. And uh, I just didn't have that same inclination. Um, I had always kind of been drawn to the military, but I hadn't really had a um, a roadmap, so to speak, to kind of get there, aside from just walking to a recruiter one day. So after my first semester, I was back here in, ten- in Nashville and walked into the Army recruiter, and they were on a lunch break. So I walked next door to the Navy recruiter, and at the time, they were, they were pushing the special operations, specifically the SEAL teams, and there were brochures everywhere and posters on the wall. And um, so I guess I was about 19 or just turned 20 at that point. And uh, I bought into the whole sales pitch of, you know, the world's most elite unit, you know, hardest military training in the world and uh, started reading books and watching movies, very few of which are accurate, but it kind of gives you that fire in your belly. Um, And just, I think it gave me a direction and steps to take. And so I just pursued it until uh, eventually I left for the Navy. And Matt, you're a, you're a college kid in Tennessee, and uh, you come home from a college break and you you tell your folks, your parents that uh, you've been at the recruiter's office. What was uh, what was your family's reaction like? <laughs> uh, they they just received it. Right. I would say they, they didn't. It wasn't it wasn't bad. It wasn't good. I think it was uh, I would credit to both of my parents. They uh, aside from the natural concerns, they saw that there was maybe something different about what I was saying this time. And um, they just allowed it to unfold naturally. And in this case, it continued to trend in that same direction. And when they saw the consistency with it, I think they, they, they never gave any pushback, which I, um, very grateful for. And did you finish your education there at the, uh, at Tennessee? I did. So I graduated 2013. Tell us a little bit about this word buds in, uh, in SEAL training. So buds stands for basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training. Um, it is consists of three different phases, uh, first phase, second phase, third phase. And then after the BUDS is complete, you go to SEAL qualification training or SQT. Um, those first, second, and third phases are all kind of designed to achieve certain things within the, the, um, the candidate pool. And phase one, is, I would say is primarily about grit and work ethic. Uh, phase two, you kind of translation trans, uh, trans transition into um, more of a technical application and kind of learning under stress, so learning an application. And then phase three is sort of tying it all together, um, learning tactics, weapons handling, things like that. 
I'm assuming that it would take a tremendous amount of teamwork. I mean, I've heard in all movies about the seals and the amount of teamwork that it takes. And, you know, if you leave any one uh, of your buds, uh, you know, out of the equation, it's pretty difficult to complete the task at hand. It takes a team. And so tell us a little bit about that during that initial three phase or buds training. Sure. So first phase specifically, you are broken up into what are called boat crews and uh, you are literally in a boat crew. So you have these inflatable boats that you kind of move around in and, and do uh, evolutions in. And then there's also training such as log PT, which if you favor Google images of buds training, you're guaranteed to find both of those images, the boats and the logs. Mm-hmm. Um, what really stands out about those, those uh, evolutions is the team aspect. Uh, and it seems simple, but when you're under duress in those experiences, it really solidifies, meaning, you know, if you are doing log PT, that log is going to rotate depending on who or who is not pulling their weight. So when that order is given to lift the log, if someone is not doing their portion, that log will not move fluidly. Um, so it really hones that, that requirement of communication uh, everyone kind of doing their part. And then as the program is designed, people will start to basically become weeded out through the process, who can't keep up with the team, who's not doing their part. And they really let it be, they, they, the instructors don't really go after the individuals. I mean, there may be times in you know certain cases for that, but they really let the team kind of do the filtration process for them. Um, you know, it, it can be pretty cutthroat. And if uh, you are deemed to be kind of a selfish individual, they will, or we will kind of identify that and systematically find a way to move you along, I guess. So Matt, you enter, you enter SEAL training, the different evolutions. Uh, tell us how many folks were, how many men and women is it's uh, currently all male in the SEALs. That's correct. Is that correct? That is correct. I did open it up to female candidates. From my understanding, no females have been um, successful in the pipeline yet. So you enter with how many men and then how many men complete training at the end? What what did that ratio look like? So I want to say it's hard to remember because you're kind of, they keep you in a bigger pool that eventually gets separated down to um, uh, SWIC and SEAL, SWIC being Special Warfare Combatant Crewmen. Um, but there's a lot, there's probably up to 300 candidates, you know, early on. And then by the end of first phase, or at least after hell week, um, there can be anywhere between 20 to 70 individuals to complete it. And then, uh, going into those phase two, phase three, those processes continue to kind of narrow down that, that candidate pool. And what, once you're done, let's move into SEAL life. What does your SEAL team look like? How many are on a team? What are the roles? Take us into SEAL life from a team perspective. Sure. So the um, the SEAL team is, is, from a leadership standpoint, is comprised of a commanding officer and then an executive officer and then a higher enlisted a, a command master chief. So th- that triad that we call is kind of the one that keeps the vision of the team uh, on track. And then Beneath that, you have support personnel and kind of administrative tasking. And then you have uh, anywhere between, and while I was serving between six to nine platoons, and each of that is about 17 to 20 individuals plus some support personnel like EOD. Um, and that's kind of a fluctuating number all the time, but that's generally the, the consistency of 
uh, and the composition of a SEAL team. About 220 SEALs, about 300 people altogether in a team. So is there a specialization or certain roles that SEALs play? Or they all play kind of the same role or can play all the same role? What was your special, specialization or role? So the SEAL teams uh, historically kind of had individual taskings depending on the team, and that was kind of broken out geographically. Uh, for instance, there's kind of a, um, a jungle team, so to speak, and they would manage kind of uh, South Comps so of South America, um, or, you know, they do winter warfare, but... Uh, once the war on terror kind of picked up, there was identified a need uh, for consistency and kind of a repeatable product. So now all SEAL teams and platoons are put through the exact same training process. And so you get a consistent product every deployed cycle. Um, so within that, you have individuals to provide value to those individual platoons, um, such as uh, communicators, snipers, JTACs, which are joint terminal attack controllers. Um, and there needs to be a certain allotment of those skill sets per platoon again. So when you deploy, uh, you can kind of just plug and play as needed. So my specific uh, specialties were as a communicator initially, and then a sniper and JTAC. And what does JTAC stand for? A joint terminal attack controller. So that's the guy who's talking to the aircraft, uh, dropping ordnance from, from distance in support of ground troops. Yeah. Did you have multiple leaders as you were, uh, you know, involved in the SEALs over the years? Or did you have one leader and like, however that ferreted itself out, what, what did you feel like made the greatest leader, you know, made you want to follow somebody more than anybody else? Um, so to answer that, the last part of that question first, I think it was competency, um, competency and transparency uh, was the first trait I would say we all look to for, um, in a, in a leader, but the hierarchy of the military for being the military is really about leadership all the way down to the ground level. Um, so yes, you have an entire structure and, you know, obviously, um, completing with the commander chief and the president, but all the way down, you will find yourself in a leadership role of a smaller team. Really the only time that doesn't occur is, when you're new, so you're an initial check-in, but that very quickly changes as you become responsible for um, a requirement within the platoon and, and you become that subject matter expert that everyone goes to. Um, so in which case I would call that a, you know, a leadership role as well. Yeah, I think all of our listeners would get the, the, the word competency, you know, well-trained, well-organized, follows the rules, so on and so forth. But transparency is an interesting word to me. So when you talk about a transparent leader and it's something that you look for, tell me what that really looks like in the military. What does that look like in, you know, in, in this special forces unit that is, is, uh, you know. Sure. So transparency, I guess, to think on this for a second, it is, um, you know, in the military, there's really not any, at least in the special operations community, there's no room for fraudulent behavior. And, mm -hmm. um, it gets identified pretty quickly if, if a leader presents themselves as something that they are not. Mm -hmm. um, yes, they may have the rank, they may have the title, but the community and the small unit nature of it will, will identify that and, and uh, it can be problematic for that leader in this case. Um, so with the value of transparency, I think, is really just understanding what your strengths and your weaknesses are being clear with the people who you are responsible for about what you can and cannot provide, and then allowing 
maybe subordinate in this case subordinate individuals from a hierarchical perspective you know take leadership roles where you are not uh where you're not as qualified potentially so matt you said something earlier that is still kind of in the back of my brain you talked about how leadership is expected all the way down the chain sounds like that's the result of a lot of training and a whole lot of trust and just i'm making an assumption but it seems like really you know, one of the only ways that SEAL teams can survive is through a high level of trust. Can you talk about the importance of trust on a SEAL team? Yeah, so I think the um, the nature of the training pipeline and the uh, rigor of it creates a, what I would like to say, you know, is a 60% consistency of the product. So um, no matter kind of who you meet, who you get assigned to, whatever team, you have 60% of your history is the same, at least in the context of um, training. So when it comes, talks about trust, you can kind of, you can avoid a lot of the headache of having to kind of get to know somebody because you've already kind of been vetted through this process. Um, so the trust element is kind of, that, that's already sort of wrapped into that because of the, the common background. Uh, but even going forward, it's just, it's a, it's a serious game. And there's consequences if that fraudulent behavior, you know, exists. So um, the value of trust is is really it's everything. And if it's identified that someone is not that way, then it, you know, they will become filtered out as well. How difficult would it be actually through the regimen of training? And I mean, by the time you're at deployment stage, I mean, I would imagine the trust level would have to be incredibly high. I mean. Um, through all the processes, um, the that fraudulent behavior or the character of the individual you think would have been revealed fairly early in in that process. But is that necessarily true? Yeah. So um, you know, buds in itself is a is a challenging process. But I would actually say that once you become a seal and you're going through that training, it actually becomes a lot harder because uh, the standards have been set. The standards need to be met. Because at this point, you're training not to become a seal. You're training for war in this case. Um, and, you know, the leadership, again, that the kind of the, the official uh, capacity to that, and, you know, meaning like the officer in charge or the senior enlisted, they are under a microscope. So yes, while I do say, say that there's a hierarchy and everyone kind of fills a leadership role, there is a point in which these two individuals are responsible and they are held responsible. Um, so they are con constantly for a two year or 18 months put under the microscope of, of, uh, of, you know, their leadership capacities and their character. And it, 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 they will make decisions prior to deploying if need be. So we've asked about trust and transparency and some of the other things that make up a great SEAL team. Uh, but, you know, anything else that you would add into this mix that we're missing, you know, that may, that's so important to build a strong team, especially a SEAL team, you know, something that our listeners could take away as well. I think the term leadership can sometimes be not, not overused, but people try to maybe identify with it too closely. They find themselves in a position of responsibility over other individuals and so they care. They they feel this pressure to consider themselves a leader, and um, that that is kind of true. It's kind of not like I said. There's a hierarchy. I kind of I view this as a hierarchy of leadership, which is really just for organizational efficiency. And then there's kind of the character leadership. 
and uh, you can find yourself at the top of this hierarchy, but I think it's critical to make sure that you are not um, overvaluing your capacities, uh, becoming fraudulent just because you feel like you need to fill a role. Um, some of the best leaders that I worked with were very hands-off. Yes, they were the technical number one as far as the hierarchy goes, but um, as long as they just kept the trains running on time, it was an extraordinarily fluid you know, uh, program. And so I kind of view that leadership role as the individual who has a vision and then sets the parameters. So they kind of keep that, you know, the direction, that lighthouse in the distance. That leader is the one who who kind of keeps, uh, like I said, the direction and then sets the left and right lateral limits and then lets kind of everything operate within that that realm of, um, you know, with individual nuances and, and personality traits. That just, I think that just goes to show that uh, at least what I'm reading between the lines is that uh, the military has worked for so many years on developing systems and processes and training that is proven, that works, that uh, that uh, a, a great leader, not to put words in anybody's mouth here, but a great leader is, uh, you know, is, is defined several different ways. And part of it is, you know, understanding ownership and what uh, they own as that leader and, and not necessarily, you know, turning the wrenches, if you will, but keeping all the trains running on time. And that's something, I think there's a lot as I'm listening to Matt's answer, there's a lot that I hope our, our listeners will kind of read between the lines here. And one of them is the, the, that word ownership has been kind of uh, jumping around in my, in my head as Matt's been talking is that sounds like that there's a extreme level of ownership due to the, the, um, processes and training that occurs um, that is that is proven to work. Yeah, and that's ownership uh, uh, of your strengths and your and your limitations, right? The ability to say that's that's really not a strength of mine, and then inviting, as Matt so eloquently said, that subordinate, right, to take the lead and to to not use my power and status or my rank is is. Um, um, a lever for leadership or to elevate myself above others. I have a role to play. You have a role to play. And when we collectively play those roles, we have more. We, we are the seals and we can accomplish, uh, our mission. And, uh, that, that, uh, spirit of interdependence is so powerful. And Matt, we, we, um, at Ministry Insights, we ascribe to a principle of interdependence. We think when leaders think too highly of themselves, then it isolates others from them. People don't want to be around others that uh, communicate to them that they're weak and that they don't bring value and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, we appreciate you, you, uh, uh, em, you know, exemplifying those principles and speaking to those principles today. You know, I like to close with this this thought, and I always ask uh, the people that we're interviewing, Matt, you know, is there anything I should have asked you today or anything you wished I would have asked you today um, as we close uh, our time together? Uh, there are several good questions, so I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. If I uh, maybe forgot to add value to the question of kind of what makes a leader from the military perspective, Ronnie, you kind of touched on it. I think it's really an awareness that it's their responsibility to develop someone to eventually take their place. And in doing so, they are um, creating, right, a, a kind of a competitiveness in which it holds them accountable to do a good job 
as well as developing the, um, in this case, the subordinate individual to kind of to, to, to rise to their potential. Well, listen, Matt, we're grateful for your service. Once again, we know that our listeners will benefit greatly from everything that you've had to say here today. Uh, we're grateful for your service. We're grateful for your family and their sacrifice along the way as well. And we're grateful for your love of country. God bless, Matt. And uh, we hope that you have a great 2023. Thanks, Rodney. Thanks, Steve. Until we meet again, God bless. God bless.